I am excellently as well. <laughs> You're doing excellently. Good. That's the goal on this Tuesday. But congratulations on your race this past weekend. So uh, to listeners, Derek Stone is your 70.3 North Carolina overall champion. He went four minutes, three seconds, and was the first person across the line. He broke the tape. You, They actually held the tape up for you because you were pretty far ahead. I know they have rolling starts nowadays, obviously, and uh, but there was no question. I think you won by, what was it exactly, 15-ish minutes, 13 minutes. Yeah, 13 minutes. Yeah, but to correct you, it was four minutes, three, or I'm sorry, four hours, three minutes, and 17 seconds. Uh, okay, uh, I was 17 but, seconds off. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I think it was about 13 minutes to the second place guy. Um, you know, it's a, it a pretty cool event. Uh, I, I will say the area down there, Wilmington and Wrightsville Beach, Awesome area, great vacation destination for sure. And uh, but I guess we could walk through every every piece of it. Um, what do you, what do you want to start? Yeah, so I think it would be good to go through the race, but I also think that it would be interesting to talk about your training going into it, also because obviously we are coaches and we work with a lot of uh, working athletes who have big lives, and I know that you have. Uh, you have a kid and obviously you're married and you, you work a lot. So it is also a, an opportunity, I think, to convey some of these principles that, that we harness to, to train athletes and, you know, with similar, uh, time constraints as you, I know that you're a really efficient, uh, athlete insofar as training goes and, and, you know, you, you implement some hacks, but, uh, definitely, I think first we should go through the race, just kind of talk about how it played out and then maybe go into your training. Yeah, I suppose I'll start with uh, the drive down. So, I, you know, we had, I think, four or five other athletes and working triathlete that were competing. And one of those athletes lives in Youngstown, Ohio, which is about an hour, 20 minutes from my place. And so I went to pick him up and we drove down through West Virginia and stayed at his aunt's house in Chapel Hill on Thursday night and then made the rest of the trek on Friday morning. Um, it was kind of a chaotic drive. So you're driving through the mountains, you know, the smoky mountains and the Appalachians and there was multiple accidents and it was overwhelming with the traffic. And I finally, for the listeners, if you've ever seen a truck on fire, I finally figured out why it happens. And we saw a truck, the tire was on fire and, you know, I, I, assume that they were braking going down a mountain which caused a spark and lit the the tire the rubber on fire and the guy detached the trailer from his semi truck and drove further up the road and was you know flagging people down or or i guess warning them that there was a truck on fire ahead of us and so it was kind of chaos to seeing the accidents and you know hopefully not a disaster of a fire um but getting getting into town on Friday morning, uh, we went to check in right away. It's a two transition start, which does add a little bit of complexity to just the race logistics of getting everything organized. You know, if you live or if you're staying in one area, it just adds a whole new you know element of just time. You, you kind of forget about how much time it takes to set everything up, and you know our 
our goal was to get set up and just kind of kick back and relax at the Airbnb all day. And we didn't even get to our Airbnb until like 5 p.m. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and just uh, getting the bike set up and moving everything around and getting everything set up was was uh, time consuming. But um, from there, you know, we were able to meet up with another athlete and grab dinner that night. And uh, after that, we just went went to the Airbnb and relaxed and, and slept. Um, so it was, I think every race, you know, you have this perfect scenario in your mind of how it's going to unfold leading up and you're going to just relax and rest and everything just takes so much time. <laughs> and I know for our athletes racing in St. George next week, it'll be probably similar because it is another two transition race. And it's not like the transitions are close to each other. They're pretty far apart. And uh, so just being organized is super important with that. Yeah. I mean, the worst part of racing, it's the day before and the day before the day before, because it's a pain in the butt, managing all your equipment, checking in. It's just stressful and <laughs> hard, but you know, at the end it, it, it pays off because you get to do a triathlon. Um, so you were uh, mentally preparing for, for the race. And obviously you went four hours, three minutes, 17 seconds. And did you, how were you thinking about the race beforehand as it relates to goals? So what were your goals? What were your, did you have a strategy or was it just, you know, stick to power pace, et cetera? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So, you know, leaning into the race, I knew that it's a fast swim. So it's a saltwater swim. Uh, you're not in the ocean, but you're like in the intercoastal and, you know, it's, as the high tide comes in, that pushes you, you know, right to the the point to point swim. So, um, generally, historically, it's always been a fast swim, and I was expecting to swim around twenty two minutes. You know, that was kind of my goal in my head. And uh, you know, from there, you know, when when the race was about to start, they allowed you know maybe fifty athletes to cross the road where the swim start was, and I couldn't get in that first corral. And that was a little frustrating, uh, just cause I knew, like, I know how people line up and yeah. I was really eager to be in the front of the start. And, uh, you know, sure enough, I, you know, so I started maybe two minutes back from the the first person in the water. So it's not like a, a ton of time, but it, it's not the cleanest you know path either. So as I got in the water, the water temps were, were great. It felt awesome. Um, and the sun was rising. It was a beautiful morning. But uh, I got into a, a pretty good groove right away, and I was just passing a lot of the athletes right away, and um, couldn't tell you exactly where I got out of the water, but I do know, I, I you know, so I swam twenty three. Let's see what I swim forty. Here. Yeah, twenty three forty. So I, I was within, you know, striking, you know, distance of where I wanted to be, and I know every swim is going to be different just because tide could be different every year, current could be different, so. You got to take it with a grain of salt in the water. Uh, but I did know that the transition T1 was a really long transition. So it was a little over half mile. And for me, I was like, that, that's okay. I can run fast through the transition. And I just passed a lot of people through that, that half mile stretch and then got on my bike, put my helmet on and my helmet was just full of fog and I couldn't see through it. So I put Rain-X on it, um, but I didn't put an anti-fog on it. I thought the Rain-X would also help with the fog. And, uh, that did not happen. 
So, so wait, had, it fogged, it fogged on the outside or the inside? Both. It was fogged everywhere. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, fortunately I was able to position my helmet in a way to where I could see through a small gap of the road. And uh, so I had the visibility was fine. You know, for the first five miles is a little tricky, but once, you know, once the air was coming through it, it cleared up pretty quickly. Um, on the bike, you know, my goal was to target, you know, 250 watts and just to stay arrow as long as possible. And, uh, you know, the race briefing, they talked about the drawbridges and to, you know, they had signs on the drawbridges saying stay out of arrow because they're slippery. And I'm thinking, I'm like, like, why would these drawbridges be slippery? So they're like a metal grate. And sure enough, that first one I hit at my front wheel, it'll jostled a little bit and it scared the crap out of me. And, uh, so from there we had two more drawbridges and I, at that point, I was like, I, I just got to stay out of arrow during these and make sure I'm going to stay upright because I'd rather lose, you know, three, four seconds than crash on one of those bridges because it would be a, a meat grinder for sure. So you embarked on the bike and you had a, a power sort of target. And I know that North Carolina, maybe on paper, it seems like a pretty fast bike, but it's actually pretty technical, right? So, you know, how are you? thinking about that so yeah on paper i i expected i was like okay i'll probably bike a 216 i know in years past the bike's been almost two miles long um you know and i think around 57.8 this year they they did reroute it a little bit and it was about 56.5 according to my gps and you know there was definitely some long stretches of clean road you could stay down on the highway and it was great but where the turnaround was, there's a little lollipop section. There was a bunch of turns and the roads were pretty narrow. And the way they had the cone set up, you couldn't like really take the tangent to have a wide turn. You had to cut it pretty, pretty carefully. That way you didn't, you know, wipe out. But that, so that slowed down a little bit. And I, you know, I will say on the bike too, you know, the first 20 miles or so, I felt pretty good. I knew the morning was cold, um, but looking back at the the data, it looks like the race start was around 45 degrees or 48 degrees and it dropped down to about 44.8 degrees, you know, mid bike. And that's about the time I realized, like I noticed I was pretty chilly. Uh, there's a lot of dense fog, you know, where I, I that the fog is not going to impact you at all, but you know, from a visibility standpoint, you want to be vigilant and see what's out there. So, so you did not wear, did you wear any warm or cold weather gear like arm warmers or gloves or anything i did not know because even before the swim start i felt pretty comfortable and i don't know if the temperature was a little bit different near the coast but as we got inland it definitely got colder and uh it was noticeably colder because i was chilly uh my toes were cold and uh i i couldn't even squeeze the bottle some i could hardly squeeze the bottle to get fluids out that's how cold my hands were um, so yeah, between like mile 20 and mile, you know, 50, it was a little chilly and then it warmed up, you know, towards the end of the bike. But, um, yeah, so I, I basically hit right on target where I wanted to be for power, uh, was right at 250 for average power, uh, 254 for normalized power. And, you know, throughout the bike though, I saw maybe, I guess after the first four miles, I saw like two cyclists, I passed the leader. And as I passed the leader, I got passed by the eventual leader of the bike. 
And uh, I tried to stay with him for as long as I could. But once that fog, the, fo- the fog kind of rolled in, I just couldn't see him. And I just uh-huh. I lost him essentially right in the fog. Um, and then uh, as we got back to Wilmington on the bike, uh, it was it was pretty smooth. Like, again, there was a good stretch after like the lollipop section and you could open up and go pretty fast. And we had a slight tailwind on the way back and that helped a little bit too. Um, nice. So you were, so you came off of the bike in, in about what, second, second place insofar yep. as like gun, gun goes. Gun yeah. Goes. Yeah. So I, I knew when I was approaching T2, I was in second place um, and I did everything I, I could in my power to just stay on top of nutrition too. So I had, I took in about 1200 calories on the bike and a wow, lot of, that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it is a lot. And uh, I, I, I was kind of rolling the dice a little bit, but I took a lot of fluids in too. And um, it worked out well though, because by the time I got to the run or I guess T2, I felt really strong still. And uh, the only, the only hiccup I had in T2 is I could not get my socks on just because my toes are so cold. And uh, it's a little, little tough to call getting the socks on. But once I did and got my shoes on, I fell right into the pace I wanted to. So my goal was to, you know, target, you know, 114 for the half marathon and uh, I settled right into pace from there. So what what shoes did you wear? I went with the Nike Alpha Fly. Okay. And so you tore out of T2. And what was your pace per mile that you were cranking up? According, I guess uh, the first couple of miles, according to my GPS, I was holding about 536. And then uh, there was a you know, steady uphill around mile two to mile three. So I slowed down a bit there, fell right into like an average of, you know, 540. And then the pace dropped a little bit again once it flattened out a little bit. So I stayed pretty steady right, right between 539 and 541 throughout the uh, the run course. Yeah, like a metronome. Obviously, the run is your strength. And when we think about strategy, you know, for this race specifically or in general, you know, you're obviously an Uber runner very high probability you're going to have the fastest run split you know at, at a race and does how does that govern your approach on the bike do you tend to go a little bit more conservative or you know just try to remain more or less in contact with you know the others the other racers uh during the bike or, or how does that govern how you think about racing yeah that's a great question and going into the race i was really hoping there'd be more cyclists around to kind of work with and uh it just wasn't the case. There was really no one around, you know, once the lead cyclist went by me, um, I tried to hang on for a while. And then, like I said, once I lost them in the, in the fog, I couldn't see them. Um, I will say generally, I feel like I'm going almost, I, I would say like the best effort I can for a 70.3 distance, uh, for this race in particular though, I felt pretty good. Like, and I've, I, I want I wouldn't say I felt like I was going under target, but I felt strong, like generally there's a, a moment in any 70.3 where I can feel my quads cramp or, or my hamstrings tighten up a little bit. And I never felt that this race. Uh, so I probably could have pushed a little more if there was people around me, I think that would have been another carrot just to push. And, but, uh, knowing that the run was my strength for this race, I was pretty confident I'd be able to run pretty well. So I didn't really push, push it too much on the bike. Um, or push it beyond that 250 because th- realistically that was one of my best 
bike efforts, you know, according to, for Watts. Sure. Yeah. And obviously everybody is different and it isn't a swim race, a bike race and a run race. It's swim, bike, run, it's triathlon. So the idea is to not only, you know, go as fast as you can, but also, you know, contemplate your strengths and weaknesses relative to the field. We are seeing in a long course, an increase in the importance of just tactics, strategies. You know, you look at Kona, there's a lot of discussion, a lot of chatter after Kona, you know, a week and a half ago or so uh, about different tactical outcomes there, especially on the bike. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was sort of unique in that everybody got out of the water at Kona together which is, is rare. So the front pack wasn't really able to, to separate. So the top guys didn't have, you know, a three minute, uh, lead. And then on the bike, there's a lot of, I would say controversy about how drafting influenced things. And obviously you're going to have the strong cyclists, you know, potentially, uh, complain or critique about, you know, drafting because strong cyclists don't want anybody drafting off of them. Mm -hmm. They don't want anybody to benefit from drafting. Um, so it, it's interesting because you have, you know, you have a lot of Uber runners and Kona, I, I think the importance of the run is, is really important. And I think nowadays everybody's a strong cyclist. And I mean, how many guys just broke the, the Kona bike course record on last Saturday? Uh, a lot. So it, it they're coming down to the the run, like a lot of these races and everybody's running substantially faster than they ever have before. And you ran one hour, 14 minutes. I mean, that would have, that's an insane time period. And, you know, I think 10 years ago, you know, triathlon, that's literally the, the top pros in the world that, that that's basically, that'd be a pretty good time for them. Um, but now the ante has been upped. And, yeah. and, you know, it's, it's just more tactical. Everybody, I think equipment is, is sort of even now in the, in the bike, everybody knows what's fast. Everybody has this knowledge, you know, when, as it relates to aerodynamics, um, position on the bike, et cetera, everybody's training well. So it is the case that if you can be near other athletes, when you get on the bike in long course, I think. There is more propensity nowadays to work together, even even at the legal draft distance. Mm -hmm. And I know there's some controversy. It's kind of it's a little bit silly, in my opinion, about uh, Sam Sam Laidlo. So Sam Laidlo absolutely smashed that that Kona bike, and there certain people were were, were mentioning that uh, you know he might have had a benefit from the lead moto and you know the lead motorbikes and. I'm not, I don't know. <laughs> I literally just don't know if he did or not. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Regardless, I mean, he had a, an incredible performance, but, uh, you know, I guess the the conclusion is that strategy on the bike and how it, you know, relates to the run is is important. And when you're at the top of the field like you and you have a, a weapon in the run, you know, it's, oftentimes it's, it's better to just work with others and, and, you still can save about 10% potentially, uh, you know, put out 10% fewer Watts if you're sitting even 12 meters behind somebody. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, sports it, changing. Yeah. It's, 
And I think the the biggest thing is is the field is equalizing to the point where you don't have swimmers that are doing triathlon. You don't have cyclists that are doing triathlon. You don't have runners that are doing triathlon. We have triathletes now and they're all well balanced. And so when you have, especially the pro field. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have this, the surge of young guns, you know, in prior years, athletes, you know, when they would hit 30, 35, they would uh, then move to Ironman. But you have Gustav, Christian, you know, they're early to mid twenties. You have Sam Laidlow. I think he's what? 22, 23. Yeah, super young. So it's this not people are now specializing in Ironman a little bit earlier. So this question of is, is Ironman design like do the grizzled veterans who are aerobic monsters, do they truly, are they better suited to do well at Ironman than the younger athletes? Or is it the case that the younger athletes would just, they have the potential to do really, really well at every distance, no matter what. It's just in the past, they haven't because they haven't necessarily needed to move up to the Ironman distance because they still have the speed to, you know, compete at the, uh, in the Olympic distance. Well, at ITU or, or world triathlon series races. So, um, it's, it's interesting, right? An interesting crossroad crossroads in, uh, in triathlon, I think. And one other question that I think is interesting to contemplate is, you know, what is the longevity of, you know, these athletes in their early twenties who are doing Ironmans, you know, does Ironman training and Ironman racing, does it wear you down quickly? And, you know, is there, do you have like a five to seven year window or a 10 year window where you can do it? Then the body breaks down, or maybe it's the case that, you know, you just do one or two Ironmans a year and it's fine. And you can do it for 15, 20 years. Cause theoretically somebody like Sam Laidlow, uh, I mean, if he's 22 years old, he is at least, I mean, Jan is 40, right? So is 18 years, <laughs> 18 years. It's like, wow, two decades yeah. to go. Yeah. And it, that's a good question too. When you think about age group athletes, you know, the, the training capacity and the, the intensity obviously is going to be a little bit lighter load than the pro athletes. And so I think the longevity is obviously sustainable, right. You know, but when you mentioned like the pro athletes, if they're putting in, you know, 30 plus hour blocks, you know, what does that do from a physical standpoint? You know, as long as your body's moving well, you know, there's not going to be any issues, but even from a mental standpoint to dedicate, you know, that much time. And because it's not like it's a sport, like when you think of, um, you know, LeBron James or Michael Jordan, for example, like they, they obviously put a lot of time into practicing uh, their, their skills in basketball. But there's not like a, a pain component to it or a, a discomfort. I mean, there's obviously there's some discomfort to it, but it's not like you're spending hours and hours and hours mentally battling the, the discomfort of racing and in training. Um, so I think it'll be interesting. And as we see more young athletes continue to jump into long course longer or sooner, it's, uh, I guess, time will tell, you know, what we see and how they do. Yeah. I mean, my hunch is that they can have pretty darn long careers and, and race exclusively Ironman because I, I don't necessarily think that the training load is necessarily more extreme. So load meaning intensity plus volume than what the top ITU guys are doing right now. And I think that a lot of the training methodology for Ironman, I think 
you know, one might argue that what can wear you down a lot is, is just the higher intensity running that a lot of the world triathlon guys are doing, you know, the younger Olympic distance athletes. I mean, that, that, that wears down also, but, but those guys are doing that and they're also training huge volume. So, you know, is Ironman training truly worse for you? Does it have the potential to lead to burnout at a higher rate? You know, I don't know. I think it depends sort of on the athlete. Um, if an athlete, I was, if an athlete was training 15 to 20 hours a week as a, as an Olympic distance racer, and then they, they all of a sudden they're doing 30, 35 hours a week. Yeah. I mean, I think that that can equal early to burnout, but I think a lot of these, you know, younger guys are, are still training 30 plus hours a week. Anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I suppose the, the interesting piece will be the athletes that don't have like the short course background, like Sam Lidlow or Gustav or Christian Blumenfeld. And they're, these guys are coming to the Ironman scene and they're doing really, really well. And you have these other athletes, like you mentioned that may, maybe they didn't have a background in short course, but they have done really well in the sport. And now they are getting beat by these guys. And does that do something to the mentality too? And, or do they continue to work hard and, and continue pushing through the sport? Yeah. A lot of interesting things to think about, but, you know, circling back to, to your race and, and your, your overall win at North Carolina, I think it would be interesting to discuss sort of your, your own training because most triathletes, they are not full-time professionals. They are working professionals who also do triathlon. And a lot of athletes have, you know, dreams of breaking five hours, dreams of breaking four thirty, dreams of breaking four hours, which is, I think, you know, what we're seeing, we saw a few age group athletes do that this year. I know a few of them are potentially moving up to the pro pro ranks. Um, but you know, for somebody like you, so you're a full-time coach, obviously, and you have a baby and, and I mean, you work a lot. I know a lot of people like to look at triathlon coaches and think that they have like some type of leg up as mm -hmm. it relates to the ability to train. And yes, I mean, we are, we set our own schedules, but I mean, I work more now than I ever did <laughs> as, as a, uh, you know, when I, when I worked the more traditional jobs, you know, corporations or, you know, in, in real estate and healthcare and things like that, it is, I don't have more time to train. And I know you don't, you, you probably have less time to train now than ever before, yet you are putting down faster times than you ever have before across all three disciplines. So I guess I'll just ask questions in order, but like what, so what is your average weekly volume, overall volume in hours? Yeah, that's a great question. And so I'll, I just looked back the last 90 days, I average 11 hours and 46 minutes per week. And okay. the one thing I'll say is, so yes, like yourself, I'm a full-time coach. I have the ability to negotiate the schedule a bit um, when we have help with the baby here. And the the biggest thing though is the consistency at which I do the work and how I do it. And you know, when I worked in the corporate world as well, I had to be at a certain place at a certain time, especially when I was with a specialty retailer. I had to travel a lot for work. And so I had to go to different stores and be there at a certain time and leave at a certain time. 
And that obviously is, is a, you're on a schedule. So you have to be doing certain things at certain times. And even then I was still structured because I'd get a workout done in the morning. And then if I was on the road, I'd do a workout in the evening. But um, if I was ever traveling with coworkers, there, there might be a disruption in training because we might go grab dinner or, you know, just do some type of social activity. And that obviously can influence, you know, the, the, you know, just the training in general a little bit too. 11 and a half hours a week is, is not that, that high. <laughs> and I know that you, you, that's the trailing 90 days. So, you know, call it, you know, what is that about 13 ish weeks? So, um, that is pretty typical, I think of, and a typical age grouper. Uh, and I think that is a sustainable volume for 95% of working athletes. Mm -hmm. Um, and you take an approach that I think is it's wise in that you don't allocate obviously, you know, equal time to swim, bike, run. I mean, nobody really does that, but when it comes to, if we just go discipline by discipline and the swim is, is one area where you are efficient. So, so what, what is a typical swim week for you? I would say generally I might swim between six and 7,500 yards a week. And most weeks I try to get three swims a weekend. Uh, that doesn't always happen. You know, this the swim is probably the hardest one to get in, even though I do have a flexible schedule. Uh, more often than not, um, I need to get my swim in early in the morning uh, because we have a baby. If I want to swim, it, it has to be at five a.m. And um, because if I swim at, I can't swim at six because I need to help with the baby at seven o'clock so my wife can get ready for work. So there's, there's that balancing act right there. And you know, but I have found that if I swim you know, 6,000 yards a week or 10,000 yards a week, I'm going to perform almost the same. And, uh, I will say though, the last few weeks leading up to North Carolina, I did make a conscious effort to swim more. And there was a couple of weeks where I was, you know, 9,000 plus yards a week. And, um, you know, just cause I wanted to make sure I had every edge I could going into this race. Yeah. And I think that that, that approach is, is pretty typical for the athletes who we work with. Obviously, you know, we coach certain athletes who are swimming five, six times a week, over 20,000 meters a week, but the majority are, are sort of in that, you know, three swims a week, two to 3000 yards. I know a solid number of athletes are integrating BASA workouts, uh, you know, at least five athletes I work with, we integrate those consistently and, and their swims are as good or better than they've ever been. Um, with that mix of pool and Vasa, cause it, it kind of depends on, on where an athlete is, like how mm -hmm. proficient are the, once your, your technique is, is proficient, uh, you know, that, that, that fitness component is, is what matters and accruing any incremental gain in fitness requires a pretty big time investment. So, you know, your, your half-ass swim approach, you know, there, there might only be, you know, one or two minutes difference over 70.3. Maybe that's trivial. Maybe that isn't. Uh, but, you know, I, I do think that, you know, you said that you increased the swim volume leading into the race. And I think that's wise because fitness does matter on race day. You don't want to mm -hmm. come out of the water gassed. You, you won't be able to get your heart rate down on the bike. 
you need to respect the swim and you need to look at your personal situation. And, and I, I do think that, you know, it's important to up the swim volume, especially as a race approaches. Uh, and, and that's assuming you, you know, want to go as fast as possible <laughs> and you have goals, you're not just in it to finish, but, uh, you know, so that's, that's, a a notable, I mean, you had one of the fastest swims on the day, you know, you don't have a super deep swim background. You swam, you know, one year in high school, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. One year in high school. So I, I always grew up in water. So I know I've always been familiar with it and comfortable, but yeah, it was, it was eye opening even my senior year because there's freshmen that were kicking my butt that swim a long time. And I have a 12 year old nephew now that objectively could beat me in a hundred yard. If he did butterfly for a hundred yards, he would beat me <laughs> <laughs> if I did freestyle. Yeah. I mean, the, pretty quick. The, the requirements of a triathlete as it relates to the swim, you know, much, much lower than pure swimmer, but, uh, you know, so, so you take an efficient approach to the swim and so running average, say, call it six to 7,000 per mm-hmm. week as a race approaches, maybe, maybe you up it, you know, 80%, you swim, you know, maybe 10 K a week, just say yeah. for a, a month leading into it to, to get, get a little bit of extra fitness. So that's, that's smart. Um, and then, you know, when we think about the bike and the run, I know you kind of go through blocks, but, you know, compare your bike run volume and how, how have you thought about it and how are you thinking about, you know, bike run training moving forward? Yeah. Uh, well, so I'm gonna go back to the swim for one thing and then I'll move into the bikes. So I will say that for the swim, I do dedicate, uh, generally one day to where I, I just solely focus on, on form. Um, you know, because the going into my bike and run there, I do two days where they're pretty high intensity. So that, that day between I keep really easy and it's a good day to really focus on my form in the water. And, you know, for me that I get, there's a bigger lift on, uh, the development in my stroke versus if I'm focusing on building fitness in the water. Um, but yeah, when it comes to the bike, you know, this year I made a conscious effort to try to bike a little bit more and, you know, having a baby, it does make things a little complicated on the weekends. So I try to do everything I can to minimize any type of resistance when it comes to family time. So, uh, this year, you know, I've tried to shift my long ride midweek. And so, you know, since I, I, I am self-employed, I do have the flexibility to carve out two and a half hours, you know, during the week to, to kind of get that in. And, um, so generally what I'll, what I'll do is I do two key bike sessions that are going to be, you know, higher intensity and then one long ride. And then the rest, you know, that long ride, I'll have either race specific efforts or, um, you know, something that's going to help develop fitness as well. Uh, just like any ride, but, um, the, and then, uh, any other rides I can fit in, uh, I'll generally just spend time in zone two and then work on uh, stroke work. So maybe some, you know, cadence drills and things like that. But generally I'll say my, my cycling weeks are probably between five and a half to seven hours. And, uh, you know, I don't like to say miles for cycling because if I'm on the trainer, miles don't matter. <laughs> and uh, so just right. time, you know, just time matters on the bike. And, um, and, and I guess like for the run, depending on the time of year, I'll say I probably average between 30 to 50 miles a week, uh, running. Uh, so, you know, I will kind of the same, same philosophy. I'll do two key run sessions that are, that are higher intensity 
and then a long run. Um, for the most part, I keep my long runs pretty easy. And then uh, if it's if it's something where I can't get a certain workout in, I might add intensity to the long run as well. That way I am getting that stimulus there. Um, and then any other runs I do are all going to be just you know, base building, uh, just supporting sessions that are going to help with the durability and the resilience. So I do like to run a lot. It's, it's obviously the, the one that comes the most natural to me, but, um, it's also this easy for me to jump on and do anything now. Cause I bought a treadmill as well. So if Hannah's gone and Bo's sleeping, for example, I can jump on the treadmill and knock out 30 or 40 minutes, you know, without any issues at all. But, uh, looking forward though, you know, I am, I am getting sick of, uh, getting my butt kicked on the bike <laughs> and, uh, I want to, I want to make it a conscious effort to really just hone in, uh, my bike fitness. And, um, you know, I think I've, I've showed that I can run well, you know, in almost any circumstance. And I, I know what I need to do. It's just a matter of being a little bit more disciplined with getting that time in, um, you know, cause right now, like I, I probably max out my long rides around three hours. And to me, that's, that's definitely sufficient for a 70.3 distance. However, if I want to continue and improve, uh, the long rides do probably need to be longer. And, uh, just to build that, that, that fatigue resistance on the bike and it's only going to help me on the run too. So if I get my bike fitness up, I'm only going to run faster as well. So I think looking forward, it's, um, you know, it's all about balance with the family and, and the work, obviously, but the goal would be to just log a lot of volume in this winter on the bike. And now that I live in the North, uh, there's going to be a lot of dark mornings and a lot of dark evenings. And uh, I'll just stay in my basement and jump on the turbo and pedal away. I think it's time for a cycling block for sure. <laughs> I mean, if you, uh, if you rode three minutes and 18 seconds faster, you could have broken four hours <laughs> at North Carolina. I so know you are right there, right there. And you know, it's, it's only a matter of time, but you know, as your, as your coach for the next 30 minutes, I think it's time for uh you know, focus cycling block this winter. Um, and I think you'd, uh, you'd improve. And I know you know that, but, uh, yeah, I, but to that, that point, it's, it, we do have to contemplate balance. And we have to contemplate something has to give. Mm -hmm. And if you start biking more, you are going to uh, potentially steal some thunder from swim and run. And, you know, for you, I mean, only, you know, that's obviously you, you, you're self-coached. So you know the balance, you know yourself better than anybody. And obviously you're a master at building plans. You're one of the top coaches in the country for sure. But, and you know, better than anybody that, you know, blocks and, and, you know, cycling blocks, run blocks, they're, they're good, but you know, you can't just dramatically increase load in one discipline and expect the other disciplines, you know, for you, you can't expect to sustain the same load in those, in those disciplines, especially if you work full time and things like that. I know I, just talked to one athlete, a prospect, prospective athlete, a couple of days ago, and and he was doing a, a a really large swim block, and it was you know with one of the good sort of national swim uh, coaching groups, and he was doing big big volume, consistent forty five hundred meter sessions, and it, it was interesting because you know as 
time went on, as the months went on, you know, so he he really improved quickly up front. You know, the first couple of months, you know, great improvements, you know, call it four to five seconds per hundred at cruise pace. And then he uh he retroactively looking back at it, you know, he's probably just he accrued too much fatigue. Mm-hmm. And then he started to get slower at swimming. And and eventually he reverted back to where he was over the next eight weeks or so. And like literally got slower and slower and slower, even though he was swimming a lot more. And, you know, again, looking retroactively, we just assume he was just overtraining. He was just spending too much time in the water, still trying to bike and run at the same same level. And, you know, a more reasonable approach would have been, you know, probably lowering the bike and the run volume and just emphasizing swimming. We know that block training works. And as long as, long as you're maintaining in bike run, you can make solid gains over, you know, six, eight months of, of swimming over a swim block. And then you peel back the swim load. The idea is hopefully you retain, you know, some of those gains. Hopefully your technique will have improved, especially if you're an adult learned swimmer. And, and you can tap back into that bike run fitness in a short period of time. But you know, it's a balancing act and every athlete is, is different. Um, so, yeah. It, it, the other thing I'll say too, is I have a Vasa like yourself and I know a couple other our athletes have them too. And, and when it comes to, obviously from the total load, you have to be careful with what you're, you know, what you can handle in your body. But, um, I think the biggest limiter for many athletes will be time. And so, finding any efficiency at all will be important. And, you know, for myself, if, if I'm spending more time on the bike and I can't get to the pool in the morning, uh, I can jump on my Vasa instead. And while, yeah, I'm not going to be able to have the feel for the water. It's definitely going to engage the muscles that need to be used. And, um, you know, after I had, after we had the baby last year, I took several, I took a while off swimming, I think maybe three months maybe. And, uh, I just used the Vasa and, I came back pretty, you know, like I came back and the stroke was there, you know, there was a couple of things that I needed to fine tune again, which was, you know, the breathing aspect. And, you know, cause when you're on the Vasa, you can breathe anytime you'd like, just like when you're cycling or, or running. Um, but, but yeah, just having that tool in my toolbox helps quite a bit as well. It's, it's a, it's a really good tool, especially for, for certain athletes, you know, the Vasa it's, there are many discussions about it. And one cannot deny the fact that, you know, it can, it can build a a specific type of swim fitness Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, it's, you're igniting your lats in in a very similar way as you do swimming, like to, to say that it isn't worth doing or to say that, you know, it's not doing anything is, is kind of silly in my opinion, obviously swimming is, you know, you're going to be rotating more in the water the stroke is going to be slightly different, but when it comes to, you know, fitness, so applying power over time, having that aerobic fitness in the upper body, maintaining that capillary density in the upper body. I mean, it, it is just the case that the Vasa is going to do it. And I think the Vasa does a good job, especially at, at mimicking swimming in a wetsuit. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you should not cut out pool swimming. I mean, pool swimming is, is, clearly the best way to get better at swimming <laughs> but you know the analysis is if you're time strapped if you're looking to maintain fitness it, it the vasa is a good alternative and it's it's productive and we know that we've we coach a lot of athletes who use the vasa they're able to maintain their, their swim fitness pretty solidly mm-hmm. um so yeah good good things there um 
So yeah, I mean, congrats on an amazing race. Um, one other question I had, you know, a lot of athletes, especially I work with when it comes to the run, they have hesitant uh, hesitation about using on course nutrition mm-hmm. and triathletes. We tend to be obsessed with measuring things. We want to know exactly how much we're taking in. And I, and I fall in that corner, honestly, especially when it comes to cycling nutrition, like nutrition on the bike. But then we think about the run. I often prescribe that athletes, you know, experiment with Gatorade endurance in, in training, um, and just sort of live off of the course that way. How do you think about nutrition on the run? How did you execute it in North Carolina? Yeah. Great question. I do not like carrying any nutrition on me as far as like bottles, for example. Um, I'll definitely carry gels if, if I have in my pockets, but, uh, so once I guess I'll go back to the bike, the bike, you know, I, I had five Martin gels and I had two bottles of Martin and I finished one and, and I put down half a bottle of the other. And I had one full bottle of Gatorade endurance and about a half a bottle of Gatorade endurance. Uh, when it got to the run, I grabbed a gel right away and I knew from a hydration standpoint, I was in a good spot. So I was just covered myself with water at that point and I would grab Gatorade endurance about every other aid station. And, uh, and I had, so I had two gels on the run and then Gatorade endurance throughout the, the course. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a big believer in trying to utilize what's on course because it's convenient for the most part. And, you know, it's the gels, you can carry gels of whatever brand you'd like, you know, that's pretty easy. But when it comes to like fluids, I, I think maybe it's just coming from my peer running background. I can't imagine holding like a 16 ounce bottle of fluid. It just, seems uncomfortable. <laughs> and even, even my long runs now, I don't, I, it's a bad habit, but, uh, I don't drink fluids on my long runs, even when it's pretty warm, unless it's like super, super hot, then I'll do loops past my house and, and have like a station set up where I grab fluids. But if it's 80 degrees, I'll go out and run two hours without having to drop a fluid. And that's just something that I've, I've adapted to. And so I don't recommend that to anyone. Um, but you have to know your own body, know what you're, you're able to do. Uh, I definitely will take gels on my long runs when it's over 90 minutes. Uh, but it's definitely good to be adaptable to in these races, because if, if, even if you lose your nutrition on, on the run, you know, you want to make sure you're, you're able to hold down Gatorade endurance as well. I think that there is a specific sort of pace threshold wherein holding a 16 ounce bottle in your hand is just impossible mm-hmm. or it's just so cumbersome that it's just not really doable. And Kona this year, I started with a, a bottle of water just cause I wanted to you know, try to stay cool. You know, and I was, I was holding it and, and it was just, it was driving me nuts. And it, I, I was only running Ironman pace. So call it seven minute pace, but it's just not, it's so distracting. It throws off the rhythm that the force that you're generating <laughs> just by, by that rotation you know, that upper body rotation and it, 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 you can't really ignore it. And it didn't. So you got to the first aid station, chucked it, you know, chugged that water, poured it all over me. So it was, I would do it again, but, uh, I was thinking as I was holding it that, you know, some people carry a bottle the, the entire race and it's just not doable. I think if you're running 10 minute pace, maybe the analysis is different. Uh, but just, learn how to tolerate Gatorade endurance. I think that a lot of athletes try to overcomplicate it or they consider themselves, you know, certainly if people do have stomach distress, 
food allergies are real, but I, I do think that most people would be able to tolerate Gatorade endurance as well as they would any other sports drink. The, the, the ingredients just aren't that different, mm -hmm. but people, you know, they hear that Gatorade endurance is not, you know, great or, you know, they heard, and perhaps, you know, five years ago, the solution wasn't ideal. Um, but nowadays it's the same as, as tailwind and, and all these other drinks. And I think most athletes would be able to tolerate it. And, and you need to learn like chances are you're not, you know, super special, like a special snowflake who cannot stomach Gatorade endurance. Perhaps you are, and then you have to figure out an alternative, but for your own good, I think the benefits of just having cups of cold Gatorade endurance, which is the ideal, you know, ratio of, well, not necessarily the ideal ratio of glucose fructose, but it has both glucose and fructose in it, which is ideal. Maybe the ratio could be tweaked, but you know, ideally each of those cups, 25, 30 calories, you can do the math, drink as much as you can when you're running and you'll, you'll do well. So anyway, that's, yeah. we're similarly aligned there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even to that point too. Yeah. Cause when you think, obviously every race is different. If you're doing Kona and it's 90 degrees or whatever the temperature is super warm and humid, it's good to have the water on you to, to keep cool. Um, but yeah, if you're, if you're doing a race where you're moving as fast as you can, uh, you know, if you're moving at a very fast velocity and you're holding, you're holding one pound in your other hand, that's going to feel a little, a little uncomfortable. Um, so every race is going to be a little bit different based on temperatures and conditions. Uh, the other thing too, I'll say about the nutrition piece, especially when it comes to the run, if you can tolerate certain gels, you can obviously get the calories and the sodium you need and then just take the water on course as well. You know, if that's a, a solution for some certain people. Um, yep. but yeah, like, like I, I will say like, I don't particularly enjoy Gatorade endurance. Um, I probably threw up three or four times in the bike at North Carolina and, and it happens every race, you know, it's, I think it's more of the, the volume of what I'm taking in and it, I just can't hold it all down. Um, so it's not like the whole, my whole stomach is being, you know, displaced, but there, there is a little bit that comes up every now and then. And for me, that's just part of the race. You know, that's, I just take in as much as I can to, uh, ensure that I'm not going to bonk on the run. I mean, well, 1200 calories is a pretty high amount. I mean, that's the upper level of, you know, what one generally would take in. So, so that's on that. So you basically average 500 per hour during a 70.3. And, you know, that that's a high, high rate. A lot of athletes, you know, most athletes should be able to take in around 400, call it three to 400. But uh, yeah, I mean, we're, I, I'm generally an advocate of experimenting aggressively with athletes and having them identify the upper limits and then just consuming to that, to that number. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, one other thing that I thought would be interesting to talk about today is, you know, in addition to your overall win was, was Waco. So Waco happened this weekend in Texas. So they had an Ironman Waco on Saturday, then they had a 70.3 on Sunday and it was really hot. Perhaps one of the worst, you know, conditions for an Ironman ever. Uh, I did hear that it had the highest DNF rate ever by an Ironman. So it was, it got up to 95 degrees at least. And, and it was, it felt every bit of that, if not hotter. 
Um, and the DNF rate was, was just under 30%, according to an athlete who did the Ironman, who I coach. And uh, that's that's pretty that's pretty high. I mean, obviously, that's the highest ever. And yeah. it, it's interesting because, you know, we have athletes who get really dialed in, you know, dreaming about Kona and qualifying for Kona. And, you know, it could be this sort of really stressful and uh, rewardless venture over years trying to get that KQ. And it, the, the problem with having this one sole motivation for doing an Ironman as qualifying for Kona, the issue there is that you just don't know how the races are going to go and you don't mm -hmm. know who's going to show up. Uh, so it's, it can be tough. And, but, you know, Waco is an interesting, uh, race to kind of look at because the times were so slow mm -hmm. and whereas certain athletes would have, you know, re beat the other athletes in normal conditions, freak weekends occur where the weather is outrageous and Waco was one of those. And, uh, you, you really can't account for that. So, and it, it, it is interesting because the, the athlete I coach, it's, uh, you know, he's, he's one of those athletes who is on the Kona bubble. Like he, he will qualify eventually, but it's just, it depends on who shows up in your age group. Uh, so, so the athlete I work with, he, he missed out on Kona by about less than 30 seconds. So, oh, so, so less than 30 man. seconds. And the unfortunate thing was, if so he he finished sixth in his age group there were five slots there were no roll downs and it just so happens that four out of the top six athletes in the race were in his age group and it just so happens that if there was there were two one or two additional starters in his age group there would have been another slot in his age group so talk about being on the edge there uh, if he literally, if he was in any other age group, he would have qualified with, with a cushion. So it's unfortunate, but you know, it also goes to show you that it is good to have other goals going into an Ironman apart from qualifying for Kona. Otherwise every race is just going to be depressing. And, you know, fortunately the athlete who I'm talking about is, is mentally strong, has a really good outlook on things and you know he still finished really well i mean it was top 20 overall in the whole race it's just unfortunate it's just luck um but man those conditions were brutal the winning time was nine was over nine hours 50. i think it was 951 yeah <laughs> yeah so you know and i think that athlete he's gone 906 a couple times in races so you know for him you could probably safely say he went 45 minutes slower or so um looking at the other racers that's pretty much what happened you know everybody was blowing up in that run it's just if you were able to put one foot in front of the other you had a pretty good chance of uh qualifying for kona because if you were like in the running for it like, mm -hmm. on that bubble because it was carnage and a lot of incredible athletes they they, they had to do a walk run approach and I, I have respect for anybody who finished that race because it was just a war of attrition and brutal, brutal, brutal day.
what's interesting is I spoke with an athlete, you know, a friend of mine that's, he raised the 70.3 the next day. And he's like, we start at 10 AM and it's supposed to be 95 degrees. I believe that race, it rained almost the entire time. And it actually started hailing as well during the 70.3 on Sunday. So it was, the conditions were completely different, almost the exact opposite uh, the following day. And it, it's interesting because I was asking him, I was like, why wouldn't they have the half on a Saturday and the full on a Sunday? Because so they, they have the half start at 10. That way the volunteers and the race and the staff can obviously sleep through the night and be able to be prepared for the next day. But it seems like it would be more, you know, it would be logistically sound to have the half the day before and then the full the following day. But I'm sure there's obviously things that they had to work out from the race organizer standpoint. Mm-hmm. But one day, it, you know, it changed completely from the race conditions or the weather conditions. Weird, a weird day for sure. And uh, Waco, I mean, is one race where, you know, I think you maybe have to question whether or not it's going to be around for a while. I mean, I think we had the same conversation about Tulsa. Mm-hmm. Um, it just doesn't necessarily attract a lot of athletes. Maybe it doesn't need to exist. And based on just the number of starters, I think that, you know, it's, it isn't ever probably going to be a super popular race, uh, when you, when you have alternatives. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's October right now, I think a lot of athletes would prefer to do Arizona or Florida, Waco, especially if you have just absurd days, like this weekend where it was 95 degrees. Um, but you know, it's always going to be the case that you know, if an athlete's sole goal is to qualify for Kona. Maybe these sort of secondary market races are there's maybe they're still viable. I don't know, mm-hmm. but you know, maybe they serve a purpose in that regard, but you know, it's interesting to look at it from Ironman's perspective, you know, a business perspective, it might be extremely easy getting the permits and working with Waco. So maybe this race will continue to be around for a while, but, uh, I don't, I don't know. It's, I think there were only like 600 starters, um, or something like that. So for the Ironman, which is extremely small when you consider, you know, race like Chattanooga pretty much sells out or Arizona and they have, you know, probably approaching 3000, um, I don't know, two to 3000 probably. So, yeah. Yeah. I'd imagine there's an analysis of, you know, obviously vehicle traffic, you know, the density of the city, how quickly they can get out and not disrupt the, the rest of the population. Um, you know, cause that, you look at races across the country and you have some that are in markets where there is a larger city nearby, or it starts within the city. And then some starting a really small town, you know, that you wonder like how they have the capacity to even host that many athletes. And, uh, yep. but obviously, you know, I know they have to partner with the cities and the local jurisdictions and, and the municipal, uh, like the police and the, and everyone else to get these events on, you know, up and going. And, and then also even the volunteers, you know, like, uh, you think about the, the amount of volunteers they need to pull this off and it's not minimal. It's, it's, uh, it's quite the task to, to get people to come out and help us out. And we do think of those people because if they didn't come out, we wouldn't be able to have this opportunity to race. Oh yeah. We have to thank our volunteers for sure. And, you know, thinking about Ironmans and different markets, you know, it's, it's interesting to see that over the last couple of weeks, there were some new ones announced 
I know Penn State. There's one up mm-hmm. in Penn State, Happy Valley. That's pretty cool. Um, I think, I mean, we'll see if I know, well, I'm from Pennsylvania and I also know that Alex Leandri, one of our triathlon coaches went to Penn state. She's from Pennsylvania also. And, uh, we'll see if she does that, that one, but that it makes sense to have, because there really wasn't one in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. for that, which is somewhat surprising. Um, yeah, I'd admit like, obviously they have like a some races that have been around a long time, you know, I know steelhead has been around for a long time. That's in Southwest Michigan. Uh, I think, you know, Gulf coast has been around. Well, no, that's, that was a purchase one or that came from another organizer, but some races have been around a long time and then they have new ones that kind of populate. And I think they want to target different markets and have different experiences too. But yeah, I think Pennsylvania will be pretty cool. I already had an athlete sign up because they live in Pennsylvania and it's, uh, it's an easy drive for them. So it makes sense. You know, obviously convenience to get into these races matters a lot for people. It does for sure. So hopefully that one will, will stick around. I'll have to do it one year, Mm -hmm. a little homecoming. Oh yeah. But, uh, but cool. Well, congratulations once again for breaking the tape and getting some amazing photographs of yourself breaking the tape. That's obviously on any top (laughs) athletes bucket list to be the overall champ at a, a 70.3. I mean, so you were the overall amateur champ at Chattanooga a few years ago, but this is the first time you actually won overall and broke the tape, which is that's, that's the dream. And, you know, right. Flirting with that sub four hour mark. So congrats. Not, nobody is surprised, but it's cool you know, chatting through your race strategy with you and execution. And I think a lot of athletes are going to take some little nuggets of wisdom from it. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. One of the coolest things I got, you know, they actually shared the, you know, myself and the female that won, we got uh, the the finishing tapes as our award. So that was pretty cool. That is awesome. That's cool. And you did it with a baby with, you know, full-time 40 plus hour per week job. So, you know, high performance is possible as long as you know how to balance well, recover well, etc. And that's what we're all about. Absolutely. I've been telling people that I'm trying to change the perception of the dad bod and uh, change the, <laughs> <laughs> change the meaning of it. So this is the new meaning of the, of the dad bod. Heck yeah. I love it. Well, if anybody wants to reach out to Derek or me, feel free to email us at info at workingtriathlete.com and we'll uh, see you next time. Hey listeners, this is Derek Stone. I wanted to jump in real quick and make a correction. Uh, After looking back at my data in Training Peaks, I realized I had an incorrect stat for my overall volume. Um, So when I remove the current week that I'm in right now, the average volume for the last 90 days was 12 hours and 52 minutes per week. So still not high volume, but a little bit more than 11 hours and 46 minutes that I earlier claimed. Um, But thanks again for listening. If you have any questions, like Conrad said, reach out to info at workingtriathlete.com and be sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend and leave us a review. Thanks again for listening.